The story takes place that a husband and a wife are sitting in the lobby of a hotel. And a beautiful woman walks by and the husband says, you know, she's pretty. Pretty, the wife responds. First of all, she's all made up. The lipstick is all the wrong color. And the base makes her look like a corpse. Well, the husband says, I did like her eyes. She's, oh, please, the wife said. First of all, she's wearing contact color lenses because no one's eyes are that color blue. And second, the mascara is so thick you could cut it with a knife. Well, the husband says, truthfully, I thought she had nice hair. Nice hair, she says. Half of it was extensions. The other half was bleached. Well, I thought the dress was nice, he said. Sure, if you like dresses that were in style in the 80s that you can buy off of a rack in the street, well then, yeah, I guess it was a nice dress. Finally, the husband says, at the end of his rope, well, he says, sheepishly, I still think she was attractive. I don't know, the wife says. I didn't get a very good look at her. (laughs) And the thing is, The thing is is that when we think about ourselves, we often think in two ways. We think about the person that the world sees and the person inside of us that we see. You walk by a person on the street, and in nanoseconds we judge them. Skin and hair and clothes and shoes, these are the judgments that we make in the flash of an eye. But the crime isn't scanning and judging. The crime is thinking that you know all that there is to know about the person merely by what you see. Because people walk by you and me and they do the exact same thing. And do they know, even for a moment, the entire world that lives inside of us? Your dreams and your memories and your hopes and your fears and your disappointments. Can anyone, when they walk by you in the street, detect the surprise birthday party you had the night before? or the fight that you may have had with your spouse that morning. Of course they can't. And all year long, we keep that part of ourselves inside. And the outside remains the shell that everyone sees all year long except for one day. And there is one day, one moment in the entire year, When the shell and the inside merge and we no longer have to pretend. We no longer have to pretend that we are the sum of hair and makeup and clothing and eye color. And that moment begins right now. You may know that there is an ancient Jewish tradition, parts of which are observed in different Jewish communities in different ways, about what we are supposed to wear on Yom Kippur. Many people wear white a tradition that is preserved also in the covers for our Torah, on the Ark. People may also wear white kippot, white ties and shirts. In other communities of this evening, people wear, as I do, and the cantor, a kittel, a robe. Tradition says that this kittel is one that is gifted to a groom on the day of his wedding, and he is also meant to wear it on this evening as well. Custom also asks that on this evening that we wear a talit, a prayer shawl. And according to Jewish law, we're not supposed to wear a talit at night. And that's the reason why Kol Nidre always begins before sunset, 
so that we have time to put the talit on before the sun sets. And moving forward, we have customs that are universally beholden to all Jews. We are asked from this moment not to drink and not to eat. We are told to avoid bathing and pampering ourselves. And most people, including some Jews, think of Yom Kippur as a 25-hour caffeine headache capped off by a lox and bagel binge at the end. And it's undeniably that. But when you add up all the symbols laid right before your eyes, the talit, the kittel, no food, no water, no bathing or sex, we see the sum of something else. Because at its deepest level, this moment, this moment is a dry run. It is the one day of the year when we are asked to look our mortality in the face. The words that we recite on this day make it abundantly clear. How many shall pass away and how many shall be born? Who shall live and who shall die? And as a child, I have to tell you that I frighteningly held the image of God who weighed and recorded the fate that we will all face this year. But as I grew older, I saw a deeper wisdom. That it's not God who is choosing our fate, because we all share the same fate. We will at some time or another leave this world, and this day asks us to sustain the stare, to hold it in our hearts. Does that scare you? Of course it does. Times throughout the year I tell myself, Aaron, I say, you will die. You're going to leave this world. And I repeat it to myself. And to be honest, I grasp it for a second or two. And then it escapes me. But here's the thing. In those brief moments, when I grasp the truth of it, I am not angry or disheartened. But I am inspired and strengthened in what to do with the time however much of it I may have. There's that great quote in Sartre's The Wall, where there's a man who's about to be executed, and he calls out, I lived as if I had forever. And the truth is that we don't. And that lays a challenge at our feet, because we are asked in this moment, what will we do with our time? This past year has passed. And with the beginning of Yom Kippur, we are asked to think what we could have been, and now what you can be. We are not asked to be crushed or dispirited, but inspired because we have this moment. Here and now, we can make ourselves better. The paradox is that thinking about your death can bring you much closer to experiencing joy. So when my time will come, and of course I have no idea when that will be, I pray it will be many, many years from now that I will be laid to rest in this talit, robed in this kittel. And when the ancient rabbis asked, why this white robe? Why this white robe of all the things that we could wear in this evening? Why did tradition ask that we wear a kittel, a white robe? And they answered by saying, that it is what our ancestors wore as they wandered through the Sinai Desert thousands of years ago, reminding us, no matter how beautiful our homes or how large our cars, 
each of us are wanderers in this world. And yet here in this evening, with you, my beloved congregants, we also hear the words of the writer Tolkien who said, not all those who wander are lost. Indeed, beginning tonight, we are truly found. This summer it occurred to me that as of this year, the world's Jewish community is the exact number it was on the eve of the Second World War. The exact number. The only Jewish community that is demographically growing is in Israel. It is Israel that is now the world's largest Jewish community. The most exciting and progressive scholars and thinkers in the Jewish world are no longer in the great rabbinic seminaries and universities of New York or Chicago or Los Angeles, but in Tel Aviv and in Jerusalem. Which is to say that if you want to discover what the Jewish future looks like, there's an argument now for you to go to Israel. And that's why birthright trips go to Israel and not to Poland or to Brooklyn. And maybe that's obvious. But it also seems to me that there is something here too. It seems to be that there is something very important Jewishly to be found in New York and London, Los Angeles, Miami, and Toronto. And that is something that is deeply, profoundly different from what you will find in Israel. But it is no less important. You see, when a Jewish child is born in Israel, they have no choice but to live a Jewish life. And I'm not saying what kind of Judaism they will live. I really don't care about that. But they will live a Jewish life. Because their life will be defined by speaking Hebrew as their mother tongue. By government buildings and army bases that will all be kosher. And all they meet in the supermarkets are kosher too. Public transportation will be closed on Shabbat. The Jewish holidays, those are the civic holidays. Friday afternoons are filled with people wishing each other Shabbat Shalom, conferring upon them the unavoidable reality that the next day will not be Saturday, but it will be Shabbat. And that even if they're at the beach, it's not Saturday. It's Shabbat. Because there is no word for Saturday in Hebrew. The history that they will learn, the books that they will study, the songs that they will sing will all be from a Jewish universe. And a Jewish child born in Canada will face a life of polar opposites. The world around them will speak English and will be their native tongue for life. Their culture will be entrenched with Canadian civic holidays that will celebrate Christian culture, Christmas and Easter and New Year's. The subject that they'll find in school will be Canadian and Western history. The weekend will be called Saturday and Sunday. On Friday afternoon, people will wish them a happy weekend. The universe they will live and grow in will be a Canadian one. The same would be true for a child born in New York, Antwerp, or Dublin. In Israel, being Jewish is a part of who you are, whether or not you want it. They live in Jewish space and Jewish time with Jewish people. In Israel, as a former chief rabbi, Jonathan Sachs, once said, that in Israel they truly are the chosen people. Which is to say that your identity is chosen for you. 
And there is something beautiful about that. To live in a way where you don't have to explain why you are different because you aren't. To live in a way where you aren't the minority and the confidence that comes from that. But outside of Israel, outside of Israel, you have to choose to be Jewish. And Israelis are shocked when they hear just how much money, time, and effort people sacrifice outside of Israel to choose their Jewishness. If in Israel we are the chosen people, then outside of Israel we are the choosing people. Here outside of Israel we know how hard we have to work to maintain our Jewish identity. We know how much we have to give in order to make our children both good Canadians and good Jews. And it seems to me that there is something very beautiful in that. Because if Judaism is guaranteed in Israel, then the opposite is true here. Here, nothing Jewishly is guaranteed. And that drives us to claw and fight to keep what we have. It makes us ask big questions in the search for answers so that your grandchildren and great-grandchildren will have a part of this too. It makes us invest in our synagogues because places like Beth Shalom are vital if people are going to choose to be Jewish. The ancient rabbis wondered if God meant for Judaism to be only in Israel, why then was the Torah given outside of the land of Israel in the Sinai Desert? Does it mean that we are meant to be a chosen people or a choosing people? And that a memory from Rome came to me. There in Rome, if you've been there on Palatine Hill, just outside the Colosseum, is the victory arch of the Roman Emperor Titus, built after conquering, then destroying Jerusalem and the Second Temple. On the inside of the arch is the only three-dimensional depiction that we have of the Temple's menorah. It shows it being carried away by Roman soldiers with a myriad of Jewish captives in tow. The Arch of Titus was a symbol of all that was lost. And beginning in the Middle Ages, the Jews of Rome observed a tradition that would continue for centuries, which was not to walk under the arch. Instead, they would actually pay a fee to go through a neighboring home in order to avoid going under it. And then in the 16th century, at the Arch of Titus, Jews were gathered and then forced to swear an oath of submission to the church and king, which only cemented the image of them being a broken people. And why there? Because it was a symbol that Jews were no longer seen as the chosen of God, but that the Jews were chosen for persecution and humiliation. But then in 1948, when Ben-Gurion declared independence for Israel, it is said that the chief rabbi of Rome gathered the entire Jewish community. And for the first time in 1900 years, since Titus, they walked single file under that arch. Which is to say that when we choose to be Jews, it also feels like we're being chosen. Living here, we know that there are no guarantees that we will leave Jews in our wake but Israel makes the fight to find our Jewishness not only safer, but stronger. 
Beth Shalom and other synagogues throughout this land make our Jewishness not only stronger but more meaningful. And in a moment, the ushers will come through the aisles to collect your cards for our Israel bonds appeal. The money is not charity, my friends. It is a bond that pays interest. But by doing so, you will tell those who you love that this story meant enough to you that you chose to do something for it. By doing so, you'll tell them what you chose to be. Gemar Chatimatova, a blessed, sweet, good year with life and health and peace for us all.